Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John. Today we're in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. John 8, verses 31 through 36. While you're turning there, in 1964, there was a man in Ireland by the name of Jimmy Enos. In 1964, he committed murder. Without getting into the details, it was a terrible crime. He immediately felt the weight of his guilt and his shame. And the very next day, he turned himself in to the police. He confessed to what he had done. He was sent away to prison. Fast forward to the year 2000. 36 years later, Mr. Enos was eligible for parole. But in Ireland, according to Irish law, there was one thing that he had to do in order to receive it. He had to actually apply for it. And much to everyone's surprise, he decided not to. The warden came to him and said, Mr. Enos, you've completed your sentence. You don't have to stay here. You're free to go. Just sign right here. But he refused to do so. After a while, someone from the local newspaper called the prison and said, um, why is Mr. Enos still in prison? And here was the answer. If Jimmy Enos applied for parole tomorrow... He would get it, but he won't apply. He is institutionalized. He is more than happy with his surroundings. Today, it appears that Mr. Enos is still alive, a very old man. He has already spent 58 years in prison, and for the last 23 years, he has been free to go at any time. He is a prisoner of his own choosing. Now, I tell you that because it turns out Jimmy Enos is not the only person to choose prison over freedom. This world is full of people who live unnecessarily in the prison of sin and condemnation. They refuse the, uh, the, the freedom that has been offered to them in Christ. And just like Mr. Enos, they could be free if they were willing. Like Mr. Enos, they are prisoners of their own choosing. Well, in our scripture this morning, it's all about freedom. Jesus has been debating with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, but there were other people who were listening in to this debate. And when we get to verse 30, where we left off last week, it says, as he, Jesus, spoke these words, many believed in him. So there were many who were, in fact, believing in Jesus. Most of these were certainly true believers. Some of them, perhaps, were what we call make-believers. But starting in verse 31, Jesus begins to speak 
specifically to those people in the crowd who claim to believe in him on some level. And what does Jesus talk about? He talks to them about freedom and what real freedom is and what real freedom is all about. And he's not talking here about political freedom, although that is good and that's wonderful and that's so important. But he's talking about a much greater freedom. He's talking about that spiritual freedom that only he can give us. And so we're going to see three truths about this freedom in our text this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the key to experiencing freedom. The key to experiencing freedom. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now look closely at that statement. That word disciples. A disciple is a follower. In this case, a follower of Jesus. Now, nobody is born following Jesus. So if a person is a follower of Jesus, that means at some point they became a follower of Jesus. In chapter 3, Jesus had a phrase for this. He called this being born again. And so that word disciple in verse 31 refers to someone who has been born again, someone who has been saved. But how can we tell if someone is really a disciple? You know, there are plenty of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but you can't tell it from how they live, can you? There are plenty of people in history who claimed to be followers of Jesus while committing terrible atrocities. What about them? Jesus tells us right here. He says, if you abide in my word, you are disciples indeed. The Greek literally says you are true disciples so not everyone who claims to be a disciple, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is truly a follower of Jesus. Jesus said that true disciples, notice this, abide in my word. They abide in my word. Now, two questions. Number one, what is this word that Jesus is referring to? And what does it mean to abide in that word? Well, the word that Jesus is referring to, the context of John chapter 8, is Jesus claiming to be the light of the world. Jesus claiming to be the I am, the Son of God, the one who will be lifted up on the cross. And so the word that he's referring to refers to the word about himself, the identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, who he claimed to be, what he claims to do, what he promises to do for whoever believes in him. That is the word. And it's not those who merely claim to believe in Jesus, but those who abide in Jesus, who abide in his word, who are true disciples. Notice that word abide, usually when it shows up in the New Testament, it refers to someone who is abiding in their house. 
In other words, it means to reside somewhere. I reside in my house on 15th Street. And unless I'm traveling, I reside there continually. I live there every single day. And so this word to abide means not just to do something. It means to continually do something, to keep on doing something. In verse 31, to abide in Christ and to abide in his word means you continue to believe, you continue to follow, you continue to obey, you continue to learn and to grow and to worship. And Jesus said, if you do these things, you are my disciples indeed. And I want you to notice this. They do not become disciples by abiding. They abide because they already are disciples. And that's a very important difference. Abiding in Christ is not the condition of discipleship. Abiding in Christ is the evidence of discipleship. In other words, this is how we know that someone is really a disciple, if someone is really saved. A true disciple is not someone who merely repeats a prayer, gets wet in a baptistry, and then disappears, going back to live as they had always lived before. No true disciples abide in Christ. That's just what truly saved people do. Now, what do these true disciples experience? Look at verse 32, and I want you to say this verse out loud with me. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How many of you have heard this verse before? How many of you have heard this verse taken completely out of context? Isn't it interesting? You will find verse 32 literally carved in stone on many university campuses all throughout America, and yet they have no idea what it means, which is kind of ironic for institutions of higher learning, isn't it? When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, he is not saying you shall go to a school and learn stuff and academic truth will set you free. No, there will be plenty of highly educated people in hell. No, he's talking about his word in the verse before. And this is why context matters. You will know the truth about Jesus, who he is. And that verb, to know, you will know the truth, it usually means to know something intimately and to know someone personally. And thus, true disciples, they actually know Christ on a personal level, when they are saved. And then what happens? That moment someone knows Christ, that moment someone is saved, they are immediately set free from the penalty of sin. And then from that point forward, they are continually being set free from the power of sin. 
And then one day, praise the Lord, we will be set free from even the presence of sin. And I have to point out something in verse 32. I have to point out to you what Jesus did not say here. He did not say, you shall know a truth and any truth shall set you free, as if there are endless numbers of truths about Jesus to choose from, and you can pick one and any one will do. Nor did he say, you shall know your truth and your truth shall set you free. It's very popular these days for people to talk about my truth and your truth. Hear me carefully. There's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There is simply the truth. He said, you shall know the truth, the truth about himself. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, free from sin, free from condemnation, free from your past, free from guilt and shame, free from the world, freedom from fear, This is the key to experiencing real freedom. It's not just about possessing information in your head. It's about knowing Christ personally. And then the evidence follows, the evidence of abiding in Christ. So we see the the, the key to experiencing freedom, but then we also see in this the people who need freedom. The people who need freedom freedom. Look at verse 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? There were some people who heard what Jesus said in verses 31 and 32, and they were very offended. Did you know it turns out that some people do not like it when you tell them that they need to be set free? That offends some people. Now, maybe these protesters in verse 33 were those who claimed to believe but were not true believers. I personally think that these may have been the Pharisees interrupting Jesus, butting into the conversation. But notice their point. Some of them spoke out and said, wait a second, we're descendants of Abraham. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that we need to be set free? Now, you might read that and think to yourself, um, are they experiencing some, some kind of memory loss here? Never been in bondage? Are you kidding me? How about the Moabites? The Amorites, the Amalekites, Philistines. How about when they were in bondage to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans? They were in bondage over and over again. How could they say, oh, we've never been in bondage to anyone? 
Well, I'll tell you how they would have answered that. I'll tell you what the Pharisees would have said to that. They would have said, well, okay, maybe we were slaves in body, but we were never slaves in spirit. They would have said, in our hearts, we were always free. But you know what? That's where they were in bondage the most. It kind of reminds me of this famous saying by the German poet Van Gogh, who said, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. That's so true. These protesters in verse 33, they think they are free. They think spiritually they are free. And that is why Jesus says what he says in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Jesus responds and says, You guys think you are free? You think you're free? You're not free. You're sinners. And Jesus establishes a principle here that is true for everyone, everywhere, without exception. He said, whoever commits sin, meaning Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter whether you are a descendant of Abraham, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, what a powerful statement. Whoever commits sin. Who commits sin? We all do. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, what's the result of that? According to Jesus, slavery. And according to Jesus, this is the natural state of every man, woman, boy, and girl. This is man's natural state apart from grace, apart from Christ. Man's natural state is that he is a slave of sin. Second Peter 2 says that he cannot cease from sin. Romans 8 says that he is unable to please God. Titus 3 says he is a slave to his lust. Jeremiah 17 says his heart is deceitful and incurably sick. Even when man would try to do good, he does nothing for God's glory but his own. Even then, he is guided by impure motives. Listen to how Paul described this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. 
Now, there's much that could be said about that passage, but you can take all of that and you can summarize it all in one word, which you can write in the margin of your Bible beside those three, three, those three verses, and that one word is slavery. This is spiritual slavery. And no matter how hard man tries to free himself, none of his efforts succeed. Now, the lost person will say, oh, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. No, he's not. Even Socrates pointed out, he said, how can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? The lost person doesn't do what he wants. He does what sin wants. He is a slave to the habits and the desires that have mastered him. He is a slave to the passions of the flesh. He is a slave to his own sinful nature. He is a slave to the devil. And this spiritual slavery, it may look differently in each person. It might take on many different forms. For some people, it's the alcoholic who is a slave to his addiction. No matter how hard he tries, he can't break it. For some people, they are slaves to their own ambition. And unless they are constantly climbing the ladder of worldly success, deep down they are miserable. For some people, they are enslaved to sexual sin. To some people, they are slaves of man's approval. It may look differently. It may take many forms, but make no mistake about it. Jesus said, whoever sins is the slave of sin. Now, it's been said many times, you have to learn the bad news about yourself before you can learn the good news about God. The bad news is, until you come to Christ, you are a slave, a slave to sin. And listen to me carefully. You do not lose your freedom when you come to Christ. You were never free to begin with. And there's only one way to change that. This is what leads us to our final point. We see the key to experiencing freedom. We see the people who need freedom. And finally, we see the one who imparts freedom. Look at verse 35. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Jesus just told them that they are slaves to sin. That's the bad news. Now, he's going to help them to understand the good news. But in order to do that, Jesus uses this brief, tiny illustration. And this is an illustration that they were all familiar with because in the first century, many Roman homes had slaves. And of course, in Rome, it was very different. Slavery was not based on race. Any person of any color could be a slave to anyone. One out of six people in the Roman Empire were slaves in the first century. So this was something that they had seen often. Now, I want you to hear very carefully what I'm about to say. Please don't mishear me. Please don't misinterpret this. Some people 
In the first century, some slaves lived a better life as slaves than they did before becoming slaves. Not all, but some. Some slaves in the first century, in the Roman Empire, had a higher standard of, li standard of living in the master's house than they did out of the master's house. Obviously, this was very different, completely different from the system of, a, of slavery that existed in the United States and in other parts of the world today. But it's important to understand that because in this sense, Jesus said, a slave does not abide in the house forever. In this illustration that Jesus is using, to abide in the house is actually a positive. It's actually a good thing. You see, a slave might live in the house, but he's not part of the family. A slave might would have enjoyed some of the master's delicacies and luxuries, but not for long. A slave might remain for a while, but not forever. And so if you were the slave in the house, your status was always uncertain. You lived from day to day knowing that tomorrow you might be thrown out. Tomorrow you might be homeless living on the street. Tomorrow you might not have anything to eat. On the other hand, Jesus said, the Son does abide forever. The Son he has access to everything. The son can always enjoy his father's abundance and his wealth. And the son doesn't have to worry about being kicked out because sons are always sons no matter what happens. My sons will always be my sons no matter what even if they curse me, even if they abandon me, even if they forget about me, the fact that they are my sons will never change. And so what's the point of this illustration? The slave does not abide forever, but the son abides in the house forever. Where is Jesus going with this? Look at verse 36. And once again, say this out loud with me. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Just like verse 32, there are a lot of people who know this verse and quote this verse without really fully understanding it. And they don't understand it because they pull it from its context they don't understand it because they separate it from the verse before. In verse 35, Jesus said, the Son abides forever. Who is the Son who abides forever? Who is the Son who always enjoys His Father's presence? Who is this Son, in verse 35, who is free in the fullest sense of the word? That son is Jesus. So when he comes to verse 36, Jesus takes that illustration from the verse before and he applies it to himself. 
And he says, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The freedom that Jesus gives us, therefore, is the freedom which he possesses in himself. This is an amazing truth which if you understand it and you grasp it and you believe it, it will change your life. And I want you to think about it this way. Jesus is the freest being in all of the universe, right? No one is freer than Jesus. And the freedom we are given is his freedom. The very freedom of Christ. The freedom we enjoy is the freedom that he enjoys. And so let me ask you this question. How free are we? How free are we, Christian brother, Christian sister? We are as free as Jesus. I love what Paul says about this freedom in Romans 6, 17. Listen to this. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. In other words, the gospel. You believed the gospel. You placed your faith in Christ. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When you place your faith in Christ, when you accept Him and confess Him as Lord, He frees you from sin, Paul said. But He doesn't stop there. He says there's a sense in which you actually trade one kind of freedom for another kind of freedom. Or one kind of slavery for another kind of slavery. Only this time, you are a slave of righteousness. You were bound by evil, and now you're bound by good. You were bound by spirit of rebellion. Now you are bound by a willingness to serve. You were bound by hatred. Now you are bound by love. This freedom that Jesus gives us, it's not just freedom from things that are bad. It's not just freedom from sin and condemnation, although that's part of it. That's where it all begins But it's more than that. This freedom that Jesus gives us, it's the freedom to live a holy life. It's the freedom to overcome. It's the freedom to endure no matter what you are going through. It's the freedom to choose what is good and what is correct, what is righteous, what is just. It's the freedom to become the man or woman God created you to be. And that's why Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So let me ask you this. Do those words, free indeed, describe your life this morning? Do those words describe your life? There is a nation in northwest Africa, the nation of Morocco. I'll actually be passing through there briefly in a few months. But 
Morocco is a monarchy, and the king of Morocco is a man known as King Mohammed VI. A few years ago, the king's wife gave birth to a baby girl named Lala Khadija. And the king was so excited about this little newborn princess, he just wanted to celebrate. Now, there's a custom in many places, an old custom here in the United States. I'm not personally a fan, but there's a custom that men, when they welcome the arrival of a baby boy or baby girl, they would celebrate by giving out cigars. Well, this king, when his daughter was born, he wanted to celebrate, but he decided to celebrate not by giving out cigars, but by giving out pardons. He celebrated his daughter's birth by issuing pardons to 8,836 convicted criminals. Man, I sure hope he didn't come to regret that. But he celebrated by issuing pardons to all of these who had committed crimes and were guilty. But he offered them pardons, setting them free. 2,000 years ago, a baby was born, the only begotten Son of God, not in a palace, but in Bethlehem's manger. He was not only born, but he was born, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He then exchanged his innocence for our guilt when he died on the cross for us, taking on himself the punishment we deserve for all that we have done. He died on the cross, he rose again, and because he lives, he is Lord. And what does Jesus possess? What does he have to give us? What is he offering to you and to me and to everyone in this world today? He's offering us freedom in the fullest sense of the word. He offers us complete pardon for sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the question here today for all of us is this, will you receive it? Will you receive that pardon? Or, like Mr. Enos at the beginning of this message, will you be a prisoner of your own choosing? Would you join me as we pray right now? Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank You for the freedom that we have in Christ. A freedom unlike any other. A freedom no one else can give. And we thank You for that time in our lives that many of us can remember. For me, on a Sunday morning in 1987, when You set this sinner free. Father, I pray for those who are here today who perhaps right now they're still in bondage to sin, to condemnation. They think they're free, but they're not. As Jesus said, verse 34, they are indeed slaves of sin, not doing what they really want, but what sin wants. 
And Father, they desperately need to be set free. So Father, I pray that they would have that personal encounter in which they know Christ, that they would be true disciples, and that they would then abide in His Word, abide in Christ, so that they would experience this freedom and that they would share that freedom with others. Father, how I pray if there's one person who needs to come to Christ today and who needs to be set free for the very first time, God, how I pray that even now they would call upon you, acknowledging their guilt, acknowledging their need, acknowledging their inability to save themselves, that today they would call upon you and they would confess Christ as Savior and as Lord that today they would be set free. Father, would you help all of us here to take what we've read and what we've learned and, and just to live in a holy sense of awe when we think about this freedom that we have in Christ, that we would not keep it to ourselves, but that we would shout it from every mountaintop, every street corner, so that the whole world would know there is freedom in Jesus. We thank you, we praise you in his name.